If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through verse 17. Genesis chapter 2, there we go. One more note. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. So the story goes, a um, little boy and his dad um, play in the living room somewhere in the 1940s and kind of playing in the living room. And uh, as is common with fathers and sons, his dad was kind of wrestling around with his son in the floor. And at a certain point, his dad gets up and his dad goes out to a balcony area. And this little boy, like a lot of little boys, just followed his dad out to that balcony area. And when he got out there, he saw in front of his dad in the field below uh, thousands of soldiers whose feet were apart. And then all of a sudden, his dad stepped out of that balcony. Feet came together. Those soldiers' hands went up to salute his dad, and they stood in silence. That little boy was David Eisenhower, and his father was Dwight Eisenhower. And David Eisenhower said at that moment, he realized that his dad was not just his dad. That his dad was the commander of this great army. You know, I think for me, as we've been studying through Genesis and really just these first couple of chapters, but as I continue to read, what I have begun to, un begun to understand is that, that God who we, through faith in Jesus Christ, we call out to him as Abba, Father, but, but in reality, he's so much more than just our Father. He's the God of all creation. He's the one who spoke everything we see into existence. He's glorious. He's, he's holy. He's more powerful than we can get our minds around. He is creative. And, and, and best of all, he's loving and he's kind and he's personal. We've been seeing that the, the centerpiece of his creation is man. Made in the image of God. And man and, and woman are given dignity and they're, they're given authority and they're given understanding on the basis of their relationship to God. And as we continue to learn, they are accountable to God. In fact, all of creation is made by God and accountable to God. But really at this point, if we just stopped at chapter 1, if all we had of the account of the creation of man was chapter 1, there'd be a lot of questions that would remain unanswered. And so God will continue in chapter 2, and he's going to give us a closer look at man. Well, with that in mind, let's pray together, then we're going to work our way through this text. Father, we pray for your blessings upon the study of your word this morning. Father, we plead with you today to speak to each of us by means of your word that is living and active and by means of your Holy Spirit. God, I don't know every individual in this room. I don't know every person who is listening or watching online, but you do. And you love them. And God, I pray that you would reveal more of yourself to them, more of who they are. And we would understand, all of us today, how we rightly relate to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin uh, chapter 2, we see the completion of this first week and this creation account. And here, 
we have what I have entitled a memorial day. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. We learn a lot about this seventh day and much of our information about this seventh day right here. And let me just state this up front. I'm doing my best just to stick with what we have right here in this text. There's a lot about the Sabbath that we learn later on in Scripture. The first command to observe the Sabbath is not going to occur to Exodus 16. But there's a lot right here we learn about the Sabbath and we want to stick to that. But what we see right here is there's four verbs that give us a better understanding of this seventh day. And these four verbs, the first is that the, the work was completed. It said God completed. We see that, that, that verb twice, meaning very simply, very plainly, nothing to really explain here, but the work was done. In six 24-hour days, the work was complete. After the seventh day, no more creation. It's done. Six 24-hour days, work of creation is complete. And then we see that it says that God rested. God rested, and we need to understand what does that mean, that God rested? And certainly we would say, we would know that it doesn't mean that he needed to be replenished or that he needed to be re-energized. If God needs to be replenished in his energy, then God has a weakness. And as we talked about last week, if God has a weakness, then he is not God. So what does it mean that God rested? I love what one commentator said. He said this word demonstrates the complete satisfaction of God in his creation. That God steps back in this intentional pause from work and he glories in the perfection of what he's made. He rests not because he needs to re-energize or replenish himself, but because God is thorough and his creation is perfect. There's nothing that can be added. There's nothing that will be added. It is perfect and it is good. And he glories in what he has made. You know, the best analogy that I could come up with for this, and, and obviously all illustrations break down at a certain point, but I remember back to when I was in high school, my grandfather had knee surgery, and, and during that time, he couldn't do a lot of the things that he so enjoyed doing. And one of the things that he loved to do was cut his grass, and he liked a clean-cut yard, and he liked to edge sidewalks and, and, and driveway, and so I'd go over there, and I'd get, help, get to help him cut his grass, and he'd kind of help me get the mower out and get it going, and I'd get all that stuff going, and, and then I knew my grandfather had this black Dodge truck, and he liked to keep it clean, so I'd say, Gramps, pull it out. Let's wash it while I'm here, and we'd wash it up and clean it up summer day, and then afterwards, we'd go on that, that swing, uh, that a swing on the porch, and we'd go on the porch, and me and Gramps would sit there. Grandma would bring us out some fresh squeezed lemonade. It was good, and there we would sit like two kings over our kingdom. And we would sit, isn't there something good about completing a project and getting done and looking out over it and saying, that's good. That's really good. Now, obviously, in a much finite way, that's an expression of, I think, what God did on the seventh day as he looked out over what he had made and he said, that's good. That's really good. And then what does it tell us? Not only did he, he rest on that day, but he blessed this day and he sanctified it. You know, when it, when it comes to blessing this day, there's only one real part of creation that God blesses. And which, which part is it? It's, it's man and the woman. He blessed them. 
and said, be, be fruitful and multiply. So uh, he blessed man and woman. And what do we know about man and woman? They're special. He blessed them because this is a unique part of his creation. It's the pinnacle of his creation. It's the crown of his creation. Special. The man and the woman are special unto God. But then when it comes to all the days, he doesn't bless any of the other days. But when it comes to the seventh day, he blesses it. Why? Because this seventh day is going to be special to God. It's special. The seventh day. And, and he says he's sanctified. It's the first mentioning that we have of holiness. The root word here is holy. First time we see holiness mentioned in Scripture. And he uses it to describe the seventh day. He's sanctified this day. And, and, and we know very simply that it just means he set it apart. That this day is going to be set apart unto him. It's going to be a day that is, is somewhat peculiar. It's odd. We, we've talked about this. But the days, the, the months, the years, they're all astronomical. There's an explanation for them. This day, there's no explanation for it. It just sticks out as unusual. It, it appears to be odd. And yet God is going to set apart this day as special unto him. That in the pattern of his creation, he's built into it a rhythm and, 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 and a work and a rest pattern for creation primarily for us listen God could have created it in one day he could have created it all in one word and yet he spans it out over these six days and he's going to build into it a seventh day a day that will be odd and unusual for us to give for us a pattern and a rhythm for work and for worship it's interesting. There, there's so many of the commentators that I begin to read about this. They, they want to go into a command to remember the Sabbath. And we don't get that command till much later. And while I would tell you I don't think this is prescriptive or a command here, I think it's certainly instructive for Adam and Eve. That moving forward as they, they go on and they got... Cain and Abel and little Cain and Abel are asking them, Mom, Dad, what about this seventh day? What, what about this odd day? Well, God set apart this day as special because on it he rested and we rest and we worship. Man and woman are intended to be worshipers. And on this seventh day, we're going to remember that God is the God of all creation. Everything we see, he's spoken into existence by means of his powerful word. And so, you know, there's a lot of discussions. Everybody gets into, should we worship on Saturday? Some people feel very strongly about it and some Sunday or whatever. Listen, at this point, that's not even the discussion. I think there's an importance here, though, for all of us that whether you worship on Sunday or you don't or whether you work on Saturday or don't work on Saturday or Sunday, whatever, every time we come upon this Saturday, the seventh day, I think all of us ought to stop and be reminded that God is the God of all creation and he spoke everything we see into existence. There ought to be something in us that says, why is this day? We don't even think about it anymore, do we? It's just seven days. We go in. This day that sticks out is odd. We ought to stop and pause and worship the God of all creation. I, I kind of like to think of it this way. On, on Saturday, at some point, we ought to pause and say, God's the God of all creation. On Sunday, we pause and we remember that God is the one who is resurrected and he's the one who redeems us. So we worship him as our redemption. On Saturday, we worship him as creator. What a powerful picture, a good memorial day to remember that he's the God of all creation. Then we get into verse 4. And what we're going to see here is he's going to take a closer look at man. And, and there's a lot of discussion about this, and you need to know this. I think this is important. It's something you need to understand. Because if you encounter, occasionally, you might just encounter somebody that's going to come to you and say, do you really believe the Bible? Yes. And they're going to say to you, did you know the Bible contains two creation accounts and they contradict one another? Now, if somebody came to you with that, how would you respond? Would you even know how to respond? 
Because that may or may not come up. And, and, and if you go to God's Word and you just look at it at first glance, you just read it, you think, wow, that kind of looks like there's two creation accounts. It kind of looks like they contradict themselves. What's going on here? Well, I'm going to tell you there's a very simple explanation, very simple explanation, and you need to know this, because there are not two creation accounts. There is one. And this in chapter 2 is going to complement what God's already done in chapter uh, 1. So what's going on here in chapter 1? Very simply, what God is doing in chapter 1 is he's giving us a chronological account of creation. All right? He's giving us a chronological account of creation. And what is the last thing that God makes in chapter 1? Man. So in chapter 1, man is just chronologically the last thing. Now, we know he's the pinnacle of creation, but he is, chronologically speaking, he is the last thing that God makes. When we get into chapter 2, God is no longer concerned with chronology. Now man is not just the last thing he makes. Now man becomes the thematic focus of the chapter. Okay? So get this. We got chapter 1. Man is the, chronologically, the last thing God makes. In chapter 2, man is the thematic central. Now we're going to focus in on this man. And there are things, if we didn't have chapter 2, there's a whole lot about man we'd never know, isn't there? we got to have this chapter 2, so he's going to go in depth. Let me just give you a little illustration. I used this kind of last week. But if somebody came up to me and said, hey, tell me about bringing Wyatt home from the hospital chronologically. How did all that play out? Well, I'd say, well, we found out we were having a baby. We, we decided we had to get the house ready. We had to get, just set aside a room. We got a room ready. Then we decided the first thing we got to do is the flooring. Second thing we got to do, we painted the walls. Third thing, we had to find a crib. Fourth thing we had to do is we had to get a chair. And then, and then lastly, lastly, Oh, it was good. We, we brought Wyatt home. It was awesome. It was wonderful. But then suppose somebody said to me, well, well, well Pastor Chad, tell me a little bit more about Wyatt. Ha, ha, ha. Let me tell you about Wyatt. And boy, he came. I didn't have much hair, but boy, he was handsome. He was awesome. Looked like his mama. I'm going to tell you, he had blue eyes, beautiful blue eyes. He had a set of lungs on him. Boy, he could scream. Man, he was awesome. And then you know what we did? Well, we, we, we decided we'd get some flooring, and, and, and we, we also had to paint the walls. We got a crib. Uh, but let me tell you about Wyatt. Now, if I told you those two stories, both of them are true. Both of them are accurate. But if you looked at it at first glance, you say, well, they kind of could. Because in this story, you talked about Wyatt first. Then you talked about the paint and the walls and the crib. Over here, you talked about the crib first and the walls. And then you brought up man. But do you see the difference? It's a matter of perspective. In the first story, I'm telling you chronologically how it occurred. Second time, I'm just making the focus Wyatt. So here we see man in first chapter, chronologically, last thing. In chapter 2, he's going to be the focus. So we're not concerned with chronology, which is going to help us to better understand what's occurring here. So look with me, verse 4. It says there, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. That word account is the word for generations. It's toledot in Hebrew. It's the generations of humanity. Now we're starting to talk about the history of man. So it tells you right here, right off the bat in verse 4, he's telling you what he's doing. I'm making man the focus. This is the beginning of the history of man. And if you'll notice there, it uses a different name in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. So up to this point, we've just been saying, God created. Now it's Lord God. It's Elohim Yahweh. Uh, we know that this is the personal covenantal name for God, Jehovah. We add in the vowels, we get Jehovah. You remember when Moses is at the burning bush and, and Moses says, Who should I tell them sent me? They're not going to believe me. Who should I tell them sent me? And what did he say? What did he say? My name is tell them I am. That's Yahweh. Now, what's 
to me sticks out about this is who is writing Genesis? We haven't talked much about the authorship, but who's writing Genesis? Moses. And he's writing it to the people of Israel. Do you know what I think Moses is wanting to do here? Really, what God is wanting to do, because all of this is God breathed. But God is telling the Israelites that this God that you're following, that led you out of Egypt and gave you the law, he's not just the God of the law, and he's not just the God who brought you out of Exodus uh, or brought you out of Egypt. He's the God of all creation. Isn't that powerful? And here he discloses his covenantal, personal name. Well, we move on, verses 5 and 6. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the, the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now, when we read this, we say this kind of sticks out, because now we start talking about order, and it just, it just seems a little odd. And I, I struggle with this, because there's so many things written on this, uh, but my favorite explanation came from Derek Kidner, great commentary on Genesis. If you're looking for a good commentary, uh, I found it to be incredibly helpful um, but I love his explanation, and what he says is occurring here is what you have in verses 5 and 6 is simply a retelling of Genesis 1-2. In 1-2, the earth was without form. Um, it was void. It had no life. And it said that the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. So you had this watery matrix. Remember we talked about it in chapter 1. Well, what Derek Kidner says is going on here is basically no shrub. It was, it was not hospitable. It was not habitable. Uh, in its origination, when it, when it began. So he's just retelling. And, and that word mist that you'll see in verse 6, uh, some of you may have a little note that says flow. That's where he gets, it can also be flood. It's an upsurging flood. He's just telling you that water covered the surface. That He's saying here is just a retelling of Genesis 1-2. And then what happens in verse 7? What does he skip to in verse 7? What are we going to bring up? The creation of who? Of man. What day is that? Day six. Well, what happened to days two, three, four, and five? Why didn't he tell us about those days? Because he already told us about them in chapter one. Again, he's not concerned with a retelling. Now we're going to skip to man. We want to get right to the point. What we really want to see here is the creation of man. So then we learn about man's creation in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living being. What a powerful picture. Unlike any other part of creation, he's going to form man. Can you imagine this, the, 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 the piling up? I don't know how it occurred, but the, just kind of my mind, I picture the piling up of a pound of, uh, or a mound of dust and dirt, and then God goes to work he begins to form a body and flesh and a, and a heart. There's intricacy here. Forming. Why? Because he loves this individual. You know, form him. Make him. And he formed a man. And he says man singular. One man. With all the other parts of creation, especially when you talk about the animals, it talks about fish, plural. It talks about birds, plural. It talks about cattle, plural plural. But when God comes to a man, he doesn't make a herd of men. He makes one man. That this, this man is going to be unique. He's going to be special. In this good news that with each of us, God makes us uniquely and individually, unlike any other part of creation. Now, we were talking about this over the dinner table, and I said, 
You know, this means that there's only one Chad in the world. And Walker said, praise the Lord. Only one, all right? Only one Chad in all the world. There's only one you. Boy, do you see all of this? If you don't see the value of your life to God in this, you're missing the point. God formed man. He formed him from the dust of the ground. Now, this just reminds us that we're finite, aren't we? We don't worship man. Man is created. He's accountable to God who is the creator of man. He's formed from the stuff of this earth. And then it says that God breathed into his nostrils. What a powerful picture. We know that God is spirit. You can't contain him in humanness. But oftentimes scripture will paint this picture for us. And what it's wanting to see here, what God wants us to see is there's intimacy. I mean, can you imagine God getting face to face with Adam? He didn't do this with the animals. But with Adam, he gets face to face. And he breathes life into his nostrils. And he becomes a living being. Boy, do you see the warmth and the intricacy and the care that God takes with this special part of his creation? And then we see not only man's creation, but in verses 8 and follow, we see man's habitation. Then the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So he's going to put him in a garden, and it's called Eden. And Eden literally means a delight. And this garden is going to be specifically designed for man and the woman to meet all their needs. And I love it that it tells us that it was in the east, meaning that this was a real place. This is an actual, physical place. And, uh, you know, there's some based on the rivers that will try to locate it. I was, <laughs> you know, kind of interesting because it's local. But the Mormons believe that it was over in Independence, Missouri. I say, well, that's kind of funny. You know, I mean, you've been to Independence? You know, I mean. <laughs> Please don't email me about that, all right? I'm not... <laughs> Put that away. I probably shouldn't even have said it. So anyway, but, but, but look at verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. You see what God's doing here? He's building a home for man, and he handpicks perfect trees, almost as if there were some trees that weren't as good to look at as other trees, but God makes sure that the trees that he puts in this garden are pleasing to the eyes. They're beautiful, and they're good for food. I want to make sure that they got the best to eat. And then he goes on, and there was the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, I, I believe that the tree of life was an actual real tree. This is my personal interpretation, so if I'm going beyond, just let it slide out. But I'm just telling you, I think this was a real tree that the man and the woman went to so that they could have immortality. Because man is not, Im- God alone is immortal. So if man is going to have immortality, it must come as a gift, right? And so God plants this tree that they'd come to to sustain them, to sustain their life. In fact, after the fall, what is God going to put in front of that tree of life? He's going to guard it and say you can't eat of it anymore. And that's a powerful picture too because know what God's saying there? Better to die in faith than to live on continually in sin, post-fall anyway. So he's got this tree of life that's going to sustain them. Spiritually speaking, they're going to be sustained. And a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a lot of discussion about what properties. And I don't think it's so much about the properties of the tree as much as it is the opportunity that this tree is going to present that we'll talk about in just a moment. 
And then you see in verse 10, now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah and there's, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. And Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. And it flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And we don't have time here, but just the, the enormity of this. We, it, this garden was not some little four-acre plot of ground. This was an enormous enormous garden. We get this huge river that breaks into four rivers and it talks about the gold and the onyx and the delium, these beautiful stones. You get this beautiful picture of this home that God has created that meets every need the man could ever have. And then it says there that verse 14 or verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. So he's got a habitation. Now he's got a vocation. God gives him something to do. And this is a good reminder, work is a glorious thing, Pre, pre-fall. God gives man a responsibility to do something. Remember, we are made in the image of God, and God is a worker, God is a doer, and man is created to work and to do. Now, obviously, post-fall, we, we have a love-hate relationship with work, don't we? And, and we struggle with it because sin has corrupted it. But let this be a good reminder to us. It's something good about individuals. It's the reason why you, as, as you as parents, what do you do with your kids? You give them responsibility. You give them jobs. You know that's good for them. We're designed to work. This is glorious. And I can just picture Adam. He gave me a job. I've got responsibility to cultivate. We don't even know what that exactly means. But he had responsibility. He had a task to perform. Something to do with his life. And then finally, there's a prohibition. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat, it, eat from it, you will surely die. You know that surely die, it's, it's an incredibly emphatic statement. Literally it would, would read, dying, die. He's saying to them, you eat of this tree. And you are dead, dead. You ever done that with your kids? You do that again. And you're not just a little bit dead. You're dead, dead. I mean, there's just emphasis here. But really, when you look at the the whole of these two verses, God highlights primarily what? All that he's given them. You've got all this stuff. You can have anything you want from this. You can have anything you want, but from this one tree. And you know what's amazing about this? To me, this is the most glorious part and probably demonstrates love more than anything else. He gives man the ability to choose. He gives him an opportunity not to obey. And you say, that seems odd. But listen, true love is never forced. We were at the dinner table. I said, Walker... What if I told you, hey, I'm pre-programmed. I got to love you. I don't really want to, but I got to. I have to. I'm forced to. Is that what you want? Walker said, no way. I don't want that. What do you think God feels? Does he want a group of people that are robots, biomechanical machines who are pre-programmed and pre-wired to be forced to love him? And so he presents in in this garden an opportunity to disobey. 
You know, the, the analogy I used with the boys this week, I told, I told Walker, I said, Walker, imagine if I built you a home. Man, this home's awesome. I, I got a kitchen in there with a pantry. It's got everything. It's got Oreos in it. Man, it's got fried chicken in it. It's got everything you could ever love, all the snacks you love. It's got everything. I got a fridge over here. It's got some good old sweet tea. Mama's sweet tea is in there. You got some orange juice. You got, you got water. You got chocolate milk. You got everything you could want. And then, then I created a room over here. And you know what's in that room? An indoor basketball court. You can play all the basketball you want. You just shoot away all you want. Then over here, I got another room. Indoor football field. It's got Alabama in the end zone. It's perfect for you. You just play, play all you want. Play all the football you ever want to play. Everything. Man, this house, everything you could ever want or need is right there. There's one door with one room. You go through that door. You're dead, dead. And I asked Walker, I said, Walker, would you go through that door? He said, nope. I said, what if? What if, and I started it out, and I said, what if your older brother Wyatt, and Wyatt said, no, nah, no, nah, hold on, I don't want to be compared to Satan, all right, all right, just <laughs> hold on here. I said, all right, you got a point, we'll do that. But I said, what if an individual came along and said to you, Wyatt or Walker, behind that door is all the really good stuff. That that door isn't protecting you from something, That door is preventing you from all really, really good things. Now, what has that individual just done? They've lied about me, haven't they? And they've caused my son to question my character and my truthfulness. And Walker's going to have a choice. I said, would you open it then? He said, maybe. But as we're going to move forward, that's exactly what's going to happen. Satan's going to come along and say, did God really say? Can God really be trusted? Because I think what's happening here is he just doesn't want you to become like him. And you know what? The choice goes forth today. I have said all along, when we started this sermon series in Genesis, there's a cosmic battle occurring between what? Between the truth of God And the lies of Satan. And the continual choice of man is, who are you going to believe? Are you going to trust in the character of God and the truthfulness of his word? Are you going to trust in the lies of Satan? See, Satan will tell you if you follow Christ, boy, that's a boring life. It's going to be a hurtful life. No good. What he'll tell you is you can have your best life now, but the reality is that path always leads to destruction. And what Jesus says, constantly in his word, he says, I tell you the truth. And what he tells you, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to be willing to die. But you know what he also says? I've come that you might have life. You will have to be willing to die but in dying, you will live eternally. And the choice is yours. And really, for all of us moving on, even those of us who are believers, isn't that daily the choice? 
God's not going to force you. But every day you've got a choice. We always, there's something in our heart post-fall that wants to jump the fence, don't we? That thinks God's holding out on us. But you know what I believe? The more we grow in our walk with the Lord, you know what we realize? That true joy in life is not found in jumping the fence. It's learning to live within the fence. And we realize, you know what? God's word is true. Why would we ever doubt his character? If you're here today, listen to me. Just a casual reading of Genesis 1 and 2 would demonstrate to you that you are special to the heart of God. He loves you. He is perfect. He is glorious. He is holy. He is good. He can be trusted. And as we move on, the fullness of his love is going to be demonstrated that even when we sin, he sends his son to die for us. Can I just ask you today, what in the world would prevent you from trusting in Jesus? What would keep you from trusting in the God of all creation who loves you and who sent his son to die for you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are God of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth. You made everything that we see. You called it into existence by your word. You are far more holy than we can possibly imagine. And then we look at our own lives and we realize very quickly that we are finite and we are sinners. And we begin to wonder, what is man? How in the world could we ever enter into your presence? And the beauty of this is that you promised in Genesis 3.15. And that promise will come to fulfillment in Christ who will come and die. That you provided a way back to you. Through your son Jesus who came and lived and died on the cross for our sins. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you. God, I pray that they would trust in your son, Jesus, and they'd enter into a personal relationship with the God of all creation through faith in Christ. For those of us who do know you, I pray that we trust you daily. The truthfulness of your word, we trust in your character as it's revealed in your word and in creation. And we'd say no to Satan and yes to you. No to the lies and yes to the truth that we might have life as you intended. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. There'll be pastors here at the front. Maybe you just like to pray with one of us. This is your time. Know this morning, you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.